You can be an asshole, a jerk, an idiot every freaking day and still be a, the greatest teammate that's ever lived. That was Andy Smith, head coach Cornell Field Hockey. Welcome to our podcast, A Deep Dive, Conversations with Coaches. I'm Joe McCormick, head coach, Santa Rosa Junior College, men's and women's swim and dive. And I'm James Graham, the head coach of men's and women's water polo at the University of the Pacific. Let's dive in. This season, we're going to use ESPN's The Last Dance to study team culture. We want to start at the end of episode seven, when Michael Jordan says, and I quote, when people see this, they'll be like, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. No, that's you, because you never won anything. I wanted to win, but I wanted them to win and be a part of that as well. Look, I don't have to do this. I'm only doing it because it is who I am, and that's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Then he says break and gets emotional. The reason why we're starting here is that every coach we talk to had a really different take on this, on this moment in the series, what the significance of the moment was and what it said about Michael Jordan as a player and a team leader. Let me introduce you to Andy Smith, head coach of women's field hockey at Cornell University. Andy is also coached at the University of the Pacific, Cal Berkeley, and assisted with USA women's field hockey. We asked Andy about this very moment in episode seven. At this point, I think it's because it's the truest reflection of who he is. But I think it's I think he gets emotional as well because I think he can see the pain that he causes other people. And I but I think he can see the outcome. I think there's so much conflict in him about that. But I also I also think that he gets emotional because he would do he would do anything to go back on a court and play. But I think when you are driven by competition like MJ is, the first part of that quote, what he said was, "You may see me on a court at 60." And, and he's like, don't laugh. And he and like everybody's in the audience laughing. I mean, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me in a way if Michael Jordan played in the NBA again at 60. It really wouldn't. It wouldn't, you know, it, everybody else would be like, you know, what the heck? It wouldn't surprise me because that's, that's who he is. You know, it's, that's, you know, so from the, for me, that's why he gets emotional. And I think, I think there's so much conflict on the journey for him as well. Just listening to him, just reading about him. That's what I see. Do you, do you feel like, um, if he had an opportunity to do it again, um, either at 60 or, you know, young, you know, 20 something Michael, do you think he would have chosen the same path or taken the same leadership style that he's, you know, you can see some of that conflict at the end when he gets emotional and needs to take a break? Do you think he would be the same person? We do it the same way. I'm not sure he could do, and James and I have had similar discussions about with coaching. I'm not sure that he could do the same thing in the 2020s that he did in the 90s, because I think that the the youth of today are very different. And I, mm. I'm not, sh- I'm, I, you know, I, I don't know. I started coaching in America in 2002, and I'm not the same. I can't coach the same way because people respond differently, people react differently. You have to continuously evolve. As a coach, and you can you can you can have your principles and your theories and all that, but so know, that's the way, the way that. So that's a coach, but Michael yeah. Jordan's a player. Do you think he would care? I, yeah, I, Do you think he would care? I I, I don't think I don't think he would care, but I'm not sure. I, I I'm I'm interested to see what the 
results. The social, the social, the, yeah, the social media thing. I, I'm not sure how that would explode. Around so you, him. so you okay. think he'd do it the same? It's just you're not sure if the results would be the same. I think I think that he's going to do. I think he's a, a, a very rare human being, and he's going to he he's going to do it how he wants to do it, and he's not going to let anybody else. It's not going to have an, what anybody else thinks have an effect on him. I think it did at the end of that documentary because he actually thought about it. But he's going to do what he wants to do anyway. But I'm just I, for me, I'm not sure the success of it. You know what I mean? Our lively conversation with Andy continued, and we pressed him on whether or not you could still be a great teammate even if you're not liked. You can be an asshole, a jerk, an idiot every freaking day and still be a, the greatest teammate that's ever lived. One of my favorite players that I've ever coached, it was a girl who transferred to the University of Pacific, right? And she was a hothead and she wasn't particularly liked at the time. And now she's, 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 she's got lots of friends and, uh, at Pacific with teammates because they appreciate her. But, you know, I used to say about her, I'm like, the reason I love you so love coaching you is that you can start a fight in an empty room. And if you've got somebody who can start a fight in an empty room, you're well on the way to success. For another perspective, this is Dan Greaves, head club coach of Neptune Swimming. Dan was age group coach for 2016 Olympians Molly Hannes and gold medalist Maya Dorado. I don't understand why he even said that. I don't understand why he has to do that. Why do you have to be a jerk and be super competitive? Like that, that to me, the entire series, I was wondering that thing. Steph Curry is super competitive and he's not a jerk. He doesn't need to push his teammates away. He seems like he's, you can be competitive, but still compel people to want to like be with you. I mean, those, those players said to Michael Jordan when he didn't play those two years, it's like the best two years of their career. And they didn't win nothing. Uh, so I, I don't know. Well, uh, to, is, to answer is, your question. Is that, because, is that because that was the best two years of their career because they already had three rings on their finger and the pressure was off and they didn't have, feel like they had to do that? If they hadn't won any championships, would they have still said that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it seems like he had – it doesn't seem like he has very close friends. It seems like he's got a people who were using him because they knew they were going to get a ring and he was using them. That, that that's a legacy. That's a legacy of some kind. I don't. You do know. you do you think that um, it was all business for him, and it was just about the win, and it wasn't enjoyable for him? No, I think he. I think he found enjoyment in competition, for sure. Um, I think that. I don't know that he equated like winning with money. I, I like business that in that sense, business or business as you know, I in mean, like, like we're not screwing around here. We are taking care of business, you know, pushing the level of what they were doing every day in practice and games and prep off the court and all that. That Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that he was hyper focused on on being the best of the best. And he was for sure. So, I mean, it worked. I just don't think you. I don't think you need to alienate everybody like that. So on the you bring up the Warriors and Steph Curry, um, and you know from all accounts, like yeah, Steph Curry's not doesn't have that same mentality uh, as far as the way he deals with his teammates as Michael Jordan. But then you have Draymond Green, mm-hmm. right? Who I think you could argue 
has a closer mentality to Jordan. Mm-hmm. Is that required to have one of those guys on the team? What if you yeah. had only Stephs? You you probably need a mix of all of it. You need somebody you need somebody who's going to enforce the the standard that's been set. But I I think that there is a way to do it where you can get your point across and not cross into that place of where now it's like personal. Like you just you you're you're like pushing their button so much to where they dislike you as a person. You could hold people accountable. I mean, he he was. It almost seemed like in the in in the show that Jordan was just kind of bored, and so he would just take it upon himself to pick on people. Like whether it was the whether it was the you know the security guard or whoever. I mean, he just seemed like I don't know. I don't really know what it's like to be famous either. So I don't know what all that does to somebody. At moments, both Dan and Andy are on different sides of this, but at the same time. I think they have similar concerns. It seems like they're grappling with MJ's leadership style. You know, given the chance for him to do it again, would he do it the same way? Could he do it the same way? Should he do it the same way? Yeah. I mean, we opened up the show with Andy essentially paraphrasing Will Perdue, which Will Perdue in the episode uh, number seven said, let's not get this wrong. He was an asshole. He was a jerk. He crossed the line numerous times. But as time goes on and you think back about what he was actually trying to accomplish, yeah, he was a hell of a teammate. I mean, Andy clearly believes that, but at the same time has concerns about whether this is something you can do this day and age. And Dan has uh, very similar concerns about why he has to do it this way and making things personal. And was MJ making it personal or was he just holding people accountable? So I guess my big question, is conflict and confrontation a necessary ingredient in leadership and great teams? Let's bring in Dr. Ted Leland, former athletic director at Stanford, where they won 11 Directors' Cups in 14 years and over 50 national championships. He has a PhD in sports psychology, and he has worked with some of the best coaches and athletes in the world. Oh, because I, I, I think he'd received a lot of criticism over time. You know, for every every behavior, sort of, there's an upside and a downside, you know. And so he's sort of forcing task cohesion, what I call task cohesion, on, on, on his teammates. And, and that wasn't always easy. It wasn't always pretty. And I'm sure he got criticism for it. And he got criticism in the, in the uh, um, uh, documentary for it. Most of the athletes in the documentary had stuck with it, had made it. Um, and uh, um, uh, were in retrospect supportive. I'm not sure that when he and Kerr got in a fist fight, Kerr was all that supportive. <laughs> right. So, right. So this thing, this thing changes over time. Let's step out of the interview for a moment. Ted brings up an important term, task cohesion. He talks about it later, but let's define it now. Task cohesion is when a team is unified behind a common goal compared to being unified behind social relationships. More on that later, but for now, let's dive back in. When, when you decide that success is so important to you that you're going to take this unusual role, you're going to, you're going to force people out of their comfort zone. It's, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. You know, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. It's not, it's the tough in, in my sort of opinion, it's the tough part of coaching, but it's what makes sports special. Right? We're always in sports. The worst kind of environment you can be in as an athlete is where the it's status quo is acceptable, where it's okay to be as good as you are. If you're, 
I mean, if you're sixth in the six-team league in water polo, you want to be fifth. If you're third, you want to be second. And if you're first, you want to win again. And you want to win over and over again. And if you don't have that um, attitude, then I think um, then all this other stuff, all the uh, um, uh, outside distractions, all the internal, that all gets involved. You know, the only, uh, it all, it all dissipates the experience. It takes away from the great things that sport can be for people if they, if they don't have um, the, the task uh, um, camaraderie or a task cohesion um, uh, to get them forward. And it's not easy. It's not every day. You're going to have a kid that comes to practice not ready to practice. You have to work on this. There's no single pill. You can't, you can't give everybody a diet pill before lunch and they all have task cohesion. It takes a lot of time, energy, but it's, uh, I think it's the key, not only to success, but it's the key to a good experience. Ted really hones in on this concept of players wanting and needing to be held to a standard. You know, Michael Jordan said, winning has a price, leadership has a price. And Ted goes on and it got me all fired up. And he talks about the price teams pay when holding each other to that standard. Oh, God, yeah. Of course you see it in the Bulls. I mean, you know, matter of fact, that's what makes this thing fun is that <laughs> one of the great things about this uh, uh, series of documentaries is that it shows people that winning's not easy. You know, you just look at the outside. Oh, Michael Jordan, best player in the world, you know, and they had Scottie Pippen, da, 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 da. you know, they had this this recipe. It was great. Well, it it's it winning is not easy. Matter of fact, some of the most best teams I've been around um, have uh, won a championship, and then you know, after the locker room, they couldn't wait to get away from each other because they had pushed each other to uh, uh, in every possible way to win a championship. Winning a championship is hard. It's dirty. It's, it's tough. And, uh, um, and, you know, most of the great teams I've been around that have maximized their potential, let's say, or maximized their success by the end of the season, they've had it with now two weeks out of the season, they all want to see each other again. Right. But after the locker room, after the last game, it's like, I, you know, I hate you coach coach. You hate me. You know, and uh, you know, let's get out of the locker. And so it's not a, a matter of, uh, um, this uh, cohesion or what, what you want to call it. It's not a matter of everybody loving each other. It's a matter of sort of agreeing on what the goals are and then agreeing on the steps that you need to, to make it there. And I believe that is, as I watched this documentary, that's what I saw. I saw slowly bringing people around um, and outsiders coming in, role players coming in, everybody coming in, you know, believing that, Hey, if we follow, what the coach and MJ want us to do, we're going to get to our goals. We can be successful. And uh, um, so you ask the question is most important, whether it's the coach or the players. Well, I, you know, I probably would say in the end, it's got to be both. But if I had to choose to be the players, I mean, the, the athletes respect each other. They like each other more than they like the coach. When I worked for Bill Walsh, he used to say, you know, to us, sometimes you guys think that the players loyalties to you as a coach. No. Their loyalties to each other. Their love is for each other. They'll remember each other forever. They may think of you a little bit, but their <laughs> real friendship is with each other. And so the fact that Scotty and, and MJ, really MJ, was able to take this leadership role was uh, uh, was critically important. Another thing I would say about it, and, and this is a lesson that I, I I I heard from a friend of mine who was assistant general manager at the at the uh, um, San Antonio Spurs, who you could argue have done as well with their talent level Absolutely. as anybody in in the NBA. And I asked him one time, "What's the most important thing about winning in the NBA?" And he said, "Your good players have to be good people. Your good 
players because the players in the NBA are going to respect the great players. They're going to you know, envy their money. They're going to envy their prowess. They're going to match themselves against them every day. They're going to know who the best player is. They all know that, and they're going to follow that person. And if that person is, uh, um, you know, leads them in, in the wrong direction, which, you know, we've, we've got examples in the NBA of players who've done that, then the, the franchise is going to be a mess. But if you have uh, um, MJ or if you have the Admiral or you have Tim Duncan or, or, or you have uh, Curry uh, um, or, or, you know, you got a chance to get your, uh, you know, LeBron, you got to, if you have that kind of a guy as your best player, um, that's the best thing, the most important thing to win the NBA. This is what this guy said. And I think that's really true. And James, you think back on the teams you've had, when you're, when you get to the NCAA finals, you're probably, your best players were really hard workers, good people, showed up for practice, you know, weren't, weren't distractions, right? Because, and I coached probably, matter of fact, my wife laughs because, you know, I coached football for eight years and the seventh year I coached, um, uh, we had a really good coaching staff. Pete Carroll was on the staff from the, and I was a defensive coordinator and Pete Carroll and got in Greg Robinson who being the head coach of Syracuse was on that. We had a really good staff, but we our two best players on that team. The two toughest guys we had were non-cooperative. They were, they thought they knew more about football than we did. They weren't interested in team success. Um, like Michael says a couple times, you know, it's not individual success, it's team success. That's what right. he said. Now, it starts off his career. I'm not sure that was the way he felt. But towards the end, that's what he felt. So if, you're, if your great leaders are um, good people, if your best player, that's really a big step. Matter of fact, it may be one of the, you know, three or four keys, I would say, to being successful. What Ted is saying here is that winning is dirty. That's why task cohesion is so important. If this was only about relationships, teams would implode. You have to have a commitment to a shared dream, task cohesion, in order to navigate successfully through the challenges and adversity that all teams face. And that's why Ted says one of the keys to team success is that your players must be good people. He argues that Michael Jordan was a good person because he was cooperative, showed ownership, bought into the team dream, and shared the responsibility for the work that needed to be done. We're going to jump into an interview with Tracy Ham, head women's soccer coach at UC Davis. Tracy is a former professional soccer player and is one of only two American women to hold the prestigious United European Football Association A coaching license. We were talking to Tracy about Phil Jackson's coaching style and how it empowered Jordan to be an authentic and effective leader. You know, Michael was the player that Michael was because of Phil Jackson, because Phil allowed him to kind of lead the team in that way. Um, and in some ways, that's kind of a coach's dream, right? Is you're like, all right, <laughs> you want a player-led team. That, that's where I think the most successful teams come from is when they're player-led, right? And you have their own standards and expectations. And I'm, I know Michael was off-putting in a lot of ways to some of his teammates, but like they're not complaining about him when they get rings. How do you get a player-led team? How do you get to that place where you get a player-led team? You have to get lucky and get a Michael Jordan or? No, I think it's trainable. I think it's something that, I mean, obviously big personalities that helps and talent. And you hope that you hope that your best player is also the hardest working one and also has a big personality. Um, I mean, yeah, you certainly get lucky in that way. But, um, you know, Michael, 
Michael was Michael in terms of his ability to compete. Like he's the ultimate competitor in my eyes. Um, but he also got to the level that he was at was because the, the, his coach helped him get there. Um, I don't think Mike, Michael doesn't have the career that he did without Phil. Um, you know, but the allowing your players, um, you know, autonomy and empowering them to um, take responsibility for their own actions and for the direction the team's going, uh, obviously allowed, you know, kind of propelled Michael to that conversation. Hey, off season does start tomorrow. And that, again, that's the dream. Like you, as a coach, like, I want to say like, you've made it, but like, as a coach, when you know that like everyone is going to be doing the right thing, um, and you don't have to exert yourself in the way, um, you know, of trying to change the culture and get it to where you want it to be. Like when it's already there, because it took years maybe to get to that point. I mean, that's the best feeling in the world is like, you just get to, you know, kind of sit back and let them lead and let them do their thing. Cause at the end of the day as a coach, right? Like you're trying to create leaders. You're trying to, um, I mean, I am at least like, I, I want all the women that leave my programs to feel empowered and feel a sense of leadership and, and confidence. And that's something it's my responsibility to try to instill that change and instill that, you know, characteristic for them moving forward. So, you know, for Phil to see Michael take that on, um, and maybe, you know, the way his way of going about it wasn't always, you know, the best, but to for Phil to see Michael take on that role um, and have that expectation for himself, I think is incredibly powerful. And it's something that he definitely helped shape. I hear your mentality, which like strikes me to be very similar to like, you know, Jordan's overall mentality, which is just like super focused and driven and little things matter, right? Um, Michael Jordan obviously was... Um, like BJ, like I said before, BJ Armstrong said, you know, if you didn't truly love the game of basketball, it was hard to be around him. So if you have a player like that, like yourself even, right, and they're being that intense, that type of leadership, uh, do you encourage that or you have to tone it down with those players that, like, don't really love the game, right? Like, should they get on the bus of this player or should that player get okay with being on their bus? How does, how does that work? Yeah, I think I, the, when Michael Jordan says, you know, then, then this isn't, then you don't need to be here, you know, and he kind of has that emotional moment at the end um, of that one episode where he's like, break, you know, um, I've like, I connected so deeply with that because that's something that I feel like if, if you're not on board and you're, this isn't what you want to do, then there's somewhere else for you. Then this isn't the right spot for you. Um, and again, like, is everyone going to feel that deeply and that passionate? Like, no. And that's what makes Michael Jordan exceptional. That's what made him who he is, right? That's why he's better than anybody else that's ever played. You know, he's arguably the best competitor in any sport ever of all time. And so, of course, like, he takes it to, I don't even want to say an extreme, like, that's just who he is. And he's like, then this isn't the spot for you. But that's how I, that's how I feel too. If you don't, you might not love it as much as I do, but if you don't want to put in the work and support your teammates, the ones that do love it as much as I do, then this isn't the right spot for you. Because if we're all not on the same page, then we're not going to go as far as we could. And it's a disservice to your teammates, a disservice to your program. If you're not focusing on doing the little things right, and you're not supporting 
those players that that love it in the same way and you know there's certainly athletes my my biggest concern is the athletes that that love the game um but don't want to put in the work those are the problems um the problem players for me because you can't ask people to do things that you're not doing yourself you know um and that's why it's like the most amazing thing, right? Is when you one of your best players is also the hardest working, which is also the most passionate. Like that's the trifecta. Woo, we win. Yes, Tracy, that's what I'm talking about. Look, creating leaders is no small task for a coach, but effectively working with a variety of personalities, backgrounds, and commitment levels is also challenging. So how do we create an environment that allows some athletes to lead and everyone to thrive? you're always going to have different characters. And, and I think uh, to, to say that you're, you're going to treat everyone the same is impossible. Uh, the, the idea of uh, you're going to treat everyone fairly um, and you're always going to do kind of what's best for, for them, but also keeping in mind what's best, best for the team. And I think the, this is a really difficult thing to do, to be honest, for, for all coaches is, is you know you have two options essentially. You can run a very disciplined and um, very structured organization or team, and you have all these rules and guidelines. And if anyone, everyone buys by them, and I think in some ways that's a little bit easier to bring a team together. Um, or you can give a little bit of leeway, back up a little bit, let people explore their individuality and their different interests and let them branch out a bit. And the risk to that, I think there's greater risk to that. It's easy to lose the team. Um, it's easy for the team and the athletes to start bickering at each other or getting mad at, at you. Um, but I think the reward is much greater because I think at the end of the day, when you allow that flexibility that individuality come to come in you you essentially bring in the best of each person into your environment if you're able to have the maturity uh and the professionalism while also allowing that to happen uh, i think you'll end up being better as as a team than if you create an environment where essentially they have handcuffs on um, and they're just militant and they're doing just exactly what, what they're, they're told. And they're not going to be as adaptable uh, just in, in general. And I think adaptability is so important in, in sport, in team sport specifically. That was Adam Krikorian, head coach, USA women's water polo. Adam led our national team to back-to-back -back Olympic gold medals in London and Rio and he won 11 national championships as the head coach at UCLA. Adam discusses two different team culture models here, one that is militant and controlled versus one that is more adaptable and allows for freedom of expression. But he acknowledges that there is risk involved and that it's easier said than done. We put him on the spot with a situation that comes up in the last dance, and Adam stayed true to form. Seattle is playing the Bulls, and they're down 0-3, okay, to the Bulls. And Gary Payton is telling a story about talking with George Carl, and he says, uh, we were down 3 nothing, and I was mad. I said, fuck what you're talking about, George. I'm guarding, I'm guarding him. Whatever you say, you can't control this no more. 
Would you be okay with that? Would you like that? Would that bother you? 100% I'd be okay with that. I, I encourage that. There, there's some, the, the athletes, uh, we have our certain vision and our plan, but uh, there's sometimes, and I remember specifically when I was an athlete, I felt like I knew certain things about the game and about matchups that the coach had no idea. And it was nothing against the coach or the wisdom of the coach. It was, I was in the moment and I felt it. And, and there's a feel that the athletes have that we as coaches need to respect and honor. And as I say to all the athletes and even my assistant coaches, like I want all the information I possibly can, can get. And it's up to me then from that point, I don't have to agree, but I want all the information. And then, then that allows me to make the, the best educated decision. But, um, I would be fired up on that. Um, you know, obviously, uh, I, you know, it does mean, again, I would have to agree with it, but I would, uh, that would be, there's plenty of times where like an athlete has come to me and they're like, I, I want in, I want to guard that person. And you realize that it, it's, it's just their ego getting in the way. And they're like, uh, you know, I, I love the, the, I love that you want this challenge, but like you're, you're, you're in over your head, buddy. This is, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is the ego getting in the way instead of uh, the, the mind, the mind talking. Would it change your opinion if it were prior to game one? No, no, Okay. no. It takes a lot of confidence as a coach to be able to handle that moment and embrace when your athletes challenge you. And remember earlier in our conversation with Adam, he admitted this is a riskier approach, but ultimately leads to more success. And this must have been a factor in him leading the women's national team to a 69-game winning streak over a period of almost two years. There's an art to coaching. And so much of that is deciding what you believe in and what is authentic to you. In this episode, so many important ideas and topics were presented like same versus fair, winning is dirty, task cohesion, the goal of a player-led team, the importance of your best players being good people, being adaptable, constructive conflict and confrontation. And I want to keep wrestling with all of them. Let's go back to the Michael Jordan quote one last time. I want to talk about why it made him emotional and how it encompasses so much of what you just said, Jill. It starts out, when people see this, they'll be like, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. No, that's you, because you never won anything. You can tell right away this is personal for him, and he's frustrated that people judge him without ever being in his position. He's saying, if you haven't been the leader of a team trying to three-peat, then don't pretend you know what it takes, because winning is dirty. He goes on to say, I wanted to win, but I wanted them to win and to be a part of that as well. He obviously cares about his teammates, and he shows that by doing everything he can to help them reach their common goals, including pushing them and demanding more from them than they want to give, even if that means he's not going to be liked, because he knows nothing great happens by being comfortable. Then he says, look, I don't have to do this. I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. This is a statement by an authentic leader with conviction and ownership. 
He makes no apologies for driving a culture of task cohesion that can cause conflict and confrontation. Jordan finishes with, if you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. I believe he gets emotional because he's frustrated from being misunderstood. And the lack of appreciation for the sacrifices he made as the player that led the Bulls to six championships in eight years honestly hurts. You can see this quote play out in the series if you just look at the interactions between Michael Jordan and Scott Burrell. In the series, Jordan says, Scott Burrell was a talented guy. What he was lacking was commitment, determination, and seriousness. He became my guy to push. I tried to get him to fight me a few times, in a good sense. Now, we know Jordan didn't treat everyone this way. So the only question is, was it fair to push a teammate relentlessly that lacked commitment and determination? Now, maybe you like Jordan's approach. Maybe you don't. But Jordan was right. Leadership has a price. Winning has a price. And we see him paying it. I agree with you, James. And I do appreciate the sacrifices MJ made as a leader. Because I can relate to that feeling of being judged and misunderstood when I've had to make decisions that are unpopular. And I've been challenged managing the team dynamic when I've had a player willing to lead and make sacrifices, but it's upsetting to the other players. So yeah, it's extremely frustrating and emotional to feel like they don't get it. They don't understand. But the question I'm still struggling with is, was Michael Jordan a selfish leader or a selfless leader or something in between? It's in our nature to want to categorize things into boxes, right and wrong, black and white. But I think when you really get into it, we're working somewhere in the gray area and it's uncomfortable. But that's coaching. We hope you enjoyed our first episode. We'd like to thank our guests, Andy Smith, Dan Greaves, Tracy Hamm, Adam Krikorian, and Dr. Ted Leland. Special thanks to our patrons and sponsor, Barrel Brothers Brewing Company. Deep Dive is a Lucas 2 Blue Network production, and the music was composed by Ian Carpenter. On our next episode of Deep Dive, we'll continue to discuss leadership, team culture, and the impact Scottie Pippen and Jerry Krause had on the Bulls organization. Pippen was wrong. Pippen was way wrong. You go in the game and you play the game. Coach calls a play, you play the game. You talk about that afterward. You don't sit on the bench.